You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. America feels broken. Over the last decade, a nation accustomed to greatness and progress has had to reconcile itself to an economy that seems to be lurching backward. From 1999 to 2010, median household income in real dollars fell by 7%. More Americans are downwardly mobile than at any time in recent memory. In poll after poll, overwhelming majorities of Americans say the country is on the wrong track. An optimism that today's young people will have a better life than their parents is at the lowest level since pollsters started asking that question in the early 1980s. It is possible that by the time this book is in your hands, these trends will have reversed themselves. But given the arc of the past decade and the institutional dysfunction that underlies our current extended crisis, even a welcome bout of economic growth won't undo the deep unease that now grips the nation. The effects of our great disillusionment are typically measured within the cramped confines of the news cycle, how they impact the president's approval rating, which political party they benefit and which they hurt. Most of us come to see the nation's problems either as a result of the policies favored by those who occupy the opposite end of the ideological spectrum, or as an outgrowth of political dysfunction, of gridlock, bickering, and the increasing polarization among both the electorate and the representatives it elects. But the core experience of the last decade isn't just political dysfunction. It's something much deeper and more existentially disruptive. The near total failure of each pillar institution of our society. The financial crisis and the grinding, prolonged economic immiseration it has precipitated are just the most recent instances of elite failure, the latest in an uninterrupted cascade of corruption and incompetence. Christopher Hayes is an editor-at-large for The Nation and the host of Up with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. His new book is Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy. Thank you for joining me, Chris. It's a great pleasure. This is a book that puts an arrow at the heart of the American dream with an observation that culturally we have achieved a kind of cultural Peter principle. We, The entire American culture has been promoted to its level of incompetence. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of putting it. I remember encountering the Peter Principle in doing some of the reading for the book when I was looking at organizational theory and institutional dysfunction. We have a situation in which we have seen a tremendous amount of elite failure. And I think that elite failure has produced this sense of betrayal that to me is increasingly defining feeling viscerally of the times in which we live. It's a feeling that is felt across the political spectrum. I think it's felt by people on the left and on the right, the disaffected middle. And there's a sense in which the, the phrase that I always hear in doing reporting is that the game is rigged, that the, the rules are somehow different for the folks at the top, and they're managing to rig the game in their favor and insulate themselves from the accountability that everybody else has to face. You begin this book 
with an observation of just the omens across the spectrum of what's wrong, financial, church, economic, legal, government. It, it, we're surrounded by these kind of signs and portents that are almost uh, supernatural in nature. I, I'm not one for supernatural explanations, but I do think there's something haunting about the degree of and the breadth and depth of the failure and the institutional dysfunction that we've seen over the last decade. I feel that we, as a society, are stalked by the nagging knowledge of that, the sensation of it, that can almost drive us a little mad the way that a prolonged fever might. This is a really interesting and powerful argument to assemble in a book. And I think that it's important that it be read and experienced as a piece of prose. So I'd like you to talk about making that decision to attack this problem in this form. It's very kind of you to say that and very much appreciated. Uh, one of the ironies of writing a book is that the, the reason that you write a book is because you have something to say that can't be contained in an essay or sound bites or a monologue on television. And then, of course, and, and my colleague Rachel Maddow pointed this out uh, when she was on book tour. And then, of course, the first thing you do is you go out to try to promote the book and you need to boil its arguments down <laughs> to these small sound bites and it can feel daunting. Um, I really love being a writer. I love to write and I love to write long. Um, I love to write long at the at the nation where I, I've worked for a while and started to, had wanted to write a book for a while and had gone through a variety of ideas. And part of the problem is that I have a, a kind of uh, intellectual ADD, where, which is why I'm perfectly suited to journalism <laughs> and, and would have been a basket case in grad school. Um, so the question was, well, what is a topic that I want to um, spend two, two and a half years of my life immersed in. And the scope of this book's argument in terms of trying to synthesize a variety of disparate examples of failure felt like it could sufficiently engage me um, over the period of time. Uh, you know, the thing that I love about my job is learning things and learning things in the point of the learning curve that are the most, the steepest and most pleasurable, right? You know, going into a topic you don't know much about, getting up to speed. Um, and then after that, you know, there's years and years and years and years of, of, of study <laughs> with where the, the rate of increase flattens out. So I wanted to undertake a book, and then this argument began to form. And the argument really, as I think, you know, all arguments do in these conditions, changed quite a bit and evolved and adapted to... Um, my increasing research and reporting and interactions with my, my wonderful, wonderful editor. Um, I did something in this book that I think I would recommend to all writers, which is my contract had a deadline for half the book uh, midway through the writing process. And so midway through the process, rather than going a year and a half and then just giving a manuscript, after nine months... Uh, more or less. I gave in uh, half the book. And it was about 60,000 words at that point, and probably 15,000 of that survived. Um, and that was a key turning point. And I think it, it's really great to have had such a wonderful editor, but to have that kind of 
midway point where you reassess the argument you're constructing. This book is, in a sense, an example of its own argument <laughs> since you're one of the elites. You are an extremely skilled observer and writer and editor and presenter of facts. So I'd like you to just talk about once you came upon this idea of the meritocracy, ta- tell us about discovering that. I think that my there's a subtext here, which is that my experience and my life trajectory has been obviously profoundly shaped by the meritocracy and institutions that that are part of it. The aha moment in thinking about it was actually in my high school, um, which I write about in the book. And it was an article in the New York Times that first brought to my attention what was happening there. It was an article that talked about a kind of convulsive debate at the school about the declining percentage of black and Latino students at the school. And the school, when I went there, black and Latino students were quite underrepresented compared to the rest of New York City. That's due to the fact that it's a, it's a school where you take one test in sixth grade and kids from all five boroughs can take that test if they have gotten high enough standardized tests in fifth grade. <laughs> and it's highly competitive. And because of the way that educational opportunity and educational quality and poverty are distributed across the city along geographic and racial lines, the school is always skewed white and Asian. This is Hunter College High School. Exactly. But that's gotten worse in recent years to the point where you now have a school that's admitting 3% of its students are black and 1% Latino in a city that's majority black and Latino. And you have teachers and students in the school beginning to think about what happens when the school (laughs) has its first class without a single black student, which is just incomprehensible in a public institution in the city of New York. And there's a lot of causes for this trend that has gotten worse in the last 15 years. But one of them, I think, is the rise of a test prep industry around the test, which given the quality of the education that's on offer, the scarcity of that resource, and the amount of money in the city of New York was almost inevitable. You have several thousands of dollars parents are paying now for their students to go to cram schools uh, over winter break every day studying for the test, $90 an hour for tutors in the wealthier precincts of Manhattan. And what all of this does is it represents a distortion, uh, a rigging, a skewing of the basic premise upon which the school is founded, this kind of very austere but noble meritocratic vision where all the kids line up and they all take the same test. And seeing that corruption of that of that ideal and the way that it played out in reality was a kind of aha moment for me as a parable about and a model of how meritocracies in their pursuit of equality of opportunity distinct from vastly unequal outcomes inevitably break down. One of the things that is so interesting about this book is the way that you examine various aspects of meritocracy. And and I'd like you to talk about the science fiction book, essentially, that coined the word meritocracy. Yeah, it's a funny funny and lost detail of history that the word is an import. It's it's coined by a British left-wing social critic named Michael Young. In a book that he wrote in the 1950s called The Rise of the Meritocracy, which is in the tradition of, you know, in the same line as... um, Brave New World or 1984, right? It's a, it's a dystopic vision of the future. And it's written 
it's kind of a funny book. It's it's written as a history, as a monograph of history from the perspective of the future, I think 2038 or something like that, looking back on British history. And what it describes is a system in which they say, you know, Young writes that we realize that democracy really can never be more than an aspiration. We don't have rule by the many right now so much as we have rule by the cleverest. It's not rule by the people, rule by the cleverest people. And it's not a plutocracy of wealth. It's not an aristocracy of birth, but a true meritocracy. And in the book, Young writes about how intelligence testing in schools and productivity measurement and testing in firms allows both schooling and private businesses to basically separate out the best and the brightest, the most talented, and elevate them up through the system with no regard for caste and background. And he writes this as a dystopic vision because he thinks that if you bind people to this very narrow specific vision of merit and you empower just a small lot of society, you will breed, you, you are departing in a, in a profound way from the basic egalitarian commitment of democracy. And he was somewhat horrified that the word became adopted as a model. In fact, in 2001, he pens an op-ed in The Guardian saying, I, I did not mean this as a model. I meant this as, as social criticism, as, a, as, a, as satire. Uh, this is at a period in time when Tony Blair is explicitly you know, endorsing the, the idea of meritocracy and new labor. And in the American context, it's interesting to me that the adjective bureaucratic is always and everywhere an insult. No one ever got home from their first day at work in a new job and said, oh, I just love the place. It's fantastic. It's totally bureaucratic. We all understand what the word bureaucratic means, right? But you can't imagine someone getting home from work and describing the new place and saying, it seems like a really great place. It's meritocratic, right? We understand that as a compliment. And one of the projects of the book is to say, actually, meritocracy is a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> it's not such an unalloyed good. That's one of the things that struck me from the first time I saw the title. I thought saw Twilight of the Elites, America after meritocracy. And I'm thinking, well, this is kind of a paradox. And, and you're giving us a a message with cross currents. And that's what I really like about this book is it's subtle and nuanced and re requires that we engage uh, with the prose and think about what you write in a way that makes the message much more interesting and brings it home, the argument, I think, much uh, makes your argument much stronger. You talk about that meritocracy produces failing institution and detached elites who hold it in high regard, that the people who are the products of this meritocracy and the best exemplars of its failure are those, of course, who hold it in high regard. Yeah, and it's natural, I think, that people that are that people that go through a system that confers outside outsized benefits on them think the system knew what it was doing. <laughs> and you know, we see this in in, you know, who Barack Obama, uh, who is, you know, the crowning glory uh, of the meritocracy, you know, who he has in his inner circle and who he trusts, you know, the Timothy Geithners of the world. We also see it in the ways in which I mean, one of the really pernicious aspects of this is that 
the process of meritocratic ascension requires those who succeed or go through it to write for themselves a story of overcoming. Because key to the entire vision is this self-driven project, right? The self-made man of Horatio Alger. Right? Exactly. This is, and so you even in you know you have Mitt Romney at a Republican presidential primary debate saying, you know, I, I could have inherited the car company, but I walked away and I struck out on my own and I went to Harvard Law and Harvard Business School and I started Bain Capital and I earned every dollar I made. And Ann Romney gives an interview where she talks about them living in dingy student housing and having to staple to the floor carpet samples. And when times got really tough, even having to sell some of the stock that Mitt had inherited from his father to make ends meet. And it's a ridiculous story, but it's also genuinely felt. It's genuinely felt because everyone writes for themselves a story of their success that is dependent on their merit. It's a very self-justifying kind of national myth. And it's definitely bought into by the folks, most of the folks who, who succeed in it. Now, you talk about two different kind of approaches, insurrectionist versus institutionalist. And we had Obama was a fantastic, he was an absolutely stellar insurrectionist candidate. Uh, then he was promoted to his level of incompetence, whereas an institutionalist, he's not doing so hot. Well, I think, I mean, I... I... I think there's a no one could do so hot in, in the current circumstances of the White House. I mean, I think that's a that's an important underlying context. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, in, you know, I think one way to look at divisions in politics is left and right. Another way is this institutionalist insurrectionist idea. You know, insurrectionists are folks that think that our institutions are bankrupt and corrupt and shouldn't be trusted and need to be discarded or radically reformed. They're skeptical of all sorts of authority. And that's, you know, Glenn Beck is in that camp and the Tea Party's in that camp and Occupy Wall Street's in that camp. And institutionalists are those, you know, who think that the problem is an ungrateful mass, ungrateful populace that has lost trust in institutions that are actually doing a pretty good job and an elite that's pretty competent and want to reform that bond of trust. And, you know, Barack Obama definitely campaigned as an insurrectionist. I mean, changed the way Washington works, not just end the war, but end the mindset that brought us to war. That was his line in one of the debates with Hillary Clinton about America's military posture. And it's inevitable, I think, that someone who becomes president of the United States is has to be an institutionalist. But he has viewed himself as the, as the guardian of these institutions and as in charge of essentially, I think, in some senses, nobly, if not competently, or nobly, if impossibly, viewed his charge as willing those institutions back to functionality and trustworthiness through sheer good faith and effort, right? That as dysfunctional and degraded and broken as our governing institutions are, that if with enough kind of Herculean good faith and will that, that he can make them work. And there's something to be said for it in, insofar as the Affordable Care Act uh, was in some ways the product of that kind of uh, effort. The the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I think, was actually his institutionalism at its best. He went very slowly. He allowed the army to study it, brought along the generals in the Pentagon. This very slow walk, institutionally minded process of reform. But I think the conditions of the country illustrate the fact that 
there's only so far you can go with the institutions as they're currently operating. Well, there's no doubt that he inherited an, uh, a country that was, uh, to say the least, challenged by by the economy and everything else that had happened. Now, one of the things that you talk about are the the appeals of, mer- of meritocracy, you say, are two. There's the morality and the efficiency. So I'd like you to talk about those appeals and the problems with those appeals. Yeah, so there's there's two cases to make for it. Um, one is that it's a moral system because meritocracy means everyone gets what they deserve. The the slothful and dull are consigned to li- lives of uh, grueling penury, <laughs> and the brilliant and hardworking are reap the gains. I just think that that uh, with not that much scrutiny doesn't hold up that well. <laughs> no, no. Um, if only that were true. Yeah, I mean, case. just just in terms of how it actually shakes out and who is, you know, who ends up on top and who ends up on bottom. I mean, it's so clearly the case that factors outside people's control, being born into poverty, being born into wealth, relative privilege. And even if you want to take it one step further, and I don't go into this that much in the book, but this is the foundation of Rawls's theory of justice. I mean, it's unclear whether even people's own attributes as talents or cognitive ability, natural cognitive ability or natural natural social charisma, they can claim credit for, right? I mean, if those are just endowments that you get in a natural genetic lottery, it's unclear that you earn that any, well, <laughs> any more than you, you know, earned being born into a wealthy household. So I don't think there's I think the moral argument is not that persuasive. The more persuasive argument is that, look, we're going to have elites in any society. I mean, there's never been a society that didn't have some small group of people with a disproportionate influence, even ones that ideologically said they didn't (laughs) often had some of the worst. So, you know, what is how is elite selection going to work? And this seems like a decent idea, right, that we'll all be better off if the smartest folks are running the major banks. And I think that the practical argument just hasn't proven itself to be uh, particularly borne out either. <laughs> it's um, not practical. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of people. Look, the people on Wall Street are really smart. They're really smart. You know, it, it turns out that's not all there is to good decision making. <laughs> so setting up a system that really aggressively selects for competitiveness, aggressiveness, the ability to kind of go jump through hoops and also be, you know, lightning quick and very smart all the attributes that the meritocracy selects for don't necessarily produce the best kinds of elite judgment. And I and, and the final thing is that the problem with meritocracy is that the word merit is self-evident from thir- you know from a, from enough remove, abstract enough. Sure, you know, we shouldn't give out surgeons licenses by lottery. <laughs> I don't want, you know, reality game shows to select who will be airplane pilots. Right. I mean, there's we all understand there's differentiation in skill. People are good at different things and we should have people doing things that they're good at as a general principle. It's that when you zoom in on what that word merit means, what does that mean, merit? It gets really foggy really quickly. I mean, we've defined it in a specific way, having largely to do with intelligence and and hard hard working, you know, how hard you're willing to work. But it's not clear that we measure it particularly well or we have that good a handle on it. And it also means that we reduce people's attributes to these very small set of concerns that end up distorting what we value. 
One of the things I think you do very well in this book is as a writer, you give us some tools, some things we can grab onto to understand your concepts once once we walk away from the book. And there's some really love one, lovely ones. I, I, I love the... Uh, your talk about the iron law of meritocracy because that's clearly important. Yeah, the iron law of meritocracy is a, is a, a phrase that is based on the work of a German social theorist named Robert Michel, who I find fascinating. Who wrote a very a book that has been very influential for me called Political Parties. Michel's is writing in the early twentieth century, and he's grappling with the problem of he basically. He's part of the German Social Democratic Party, but he finds it just totally bureaucratic and sclerotic, and he leaves that. He goes to a more syndicalist, kind of anarchist, militant left party, and he finds it's equally bureaucratic. And he, you know, he just he starts the book by thinking, what what's the deal here? You know, we have we have the right wing parties that are very hierarchical, but that makes sense because the right wing is hierarchical; they're explicitly skeptical and hostile towards democracy and mass empowerment. So it makes sense that they have a party organization that's hierarchical. But here on the left, we believe in democracy, we believe in mass empowerment, solidarity, and yet our political parties are as just as hierarchical. How can this be? Why is this the case? And he comes up with what he calls the iron law of oligarchy. The iron law of oligarchy says that it is the nature of organization itself that requires the specialization of tasks, right? So you're running a labor union. Well, someone's got to manage the union hall. Someone's going to take notes of the meeting. Someone's going to run the press for the, the union. And very quickly, the people that get delegated the tasks that are necessary to run an organization acquire disproportionate power. And when they acquire that disproportionate power, they then use it to further entrench and embed themselves. And anyone who's ever been around labor unions sees this all the time. Um, you know, you get a union leadership that can be very difficult to dislodge. The iron law of meritocracy is my kind of analog to Michelle's argument about meritocracy. And what I'm saying there is that if you have a system in which you say we are going to work on providing equality of outcome, but not don't worry about inequality of, uh, I'm sorry, equality of opportunity, but don't worry about inequality of outcome, right? So everyone gets the same schooling or we're going to make sure that everyone has a level playing field, starting line at the same place, and then they run the race and however they end up. That ultimately what happens is that those inequalities of outcome manage to subvert all the mechanisms by which you claim to or attempt to provide that equality of opportunity. And that's th this is, I think, a, a core fact about what meritocracies look like in real life. And I think it's really important. I was really glad to see you point out that equality of opportunity does not guarantee equality of out. In fact, it leads to the opposite. And I think that's an important concept because this idea of a level playing field, as you point out, it's a nice consensus reality, but it's also a mass hallucination. Yeah, it's a it's a conceit. It's a it's an abstraction. It's a it's a part of a myth that we tell ourselves. I mean, we don't even really. We say that we care about equal opportunity in this country, but we won't actually even care about that, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you really were serious about equal opportunity, um, you know, if you equalize school funding per pupil across the various school districts, if you, you know, made sure that kids actually had the same endowments, you know, you'd have a massive amount of intervention in social engineering <laughs> that people would view as exceptionally uh, invasive and, and socialist. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's uh, I think un- underlies a lot of the this book is this uh, kind of a benign socialism that I'm advocating for. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, you know, my politics are are pretty squarely social democrats. You know, social democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of different. I think sometimes we get very reductive in this country. We get very. You know, we have these arguments in which things are either the free market or they're socialism, you know, mm-hmm. and I find that both sides of the political spectrum, but I think specifically the right more than the left, wants to argue these kind of first principle ideological arguments, these battles about the, where the market and the public sector. Mm-hmm. But it, it, that's not actually the what happens in politics in this country. The state as a percentage of GDP expanded under a Republican president, a Republican Congress. It's a question of who it benefits and what it does. This ideological discussion about regulation or less regulation, well, that's like saying, should we have fewer laws or more laws? Regulation is just a kind of law, right? And the question Mm -hmm. is, is it good? Does it produce good ends, right? Bigger government or smaller government? Well, that's actually not what is at stake in these elections. If you look historically, that's just not what is happening. We want to have that as a rhetorical argument, even though it's detached from the political reality. I mean, government grows massively in the Bush era, massively, and it grows in the in the security and security sector. There's a huge new entitlement for senior people that is also a payoff to the drug companies. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the, 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 the battle is what kind of social contract do we have? What kind of goods do we want provisioned universally? Who do we want government to help and when and how, as opposed to this more abstract but more common argument about the market versus government. Well, regulations, too, only have any meaning when they're enforced. There were certainly plenty of financial yep. regulations in in place during this entire economic crisis, most of which were blithely ignored by those who should have been holding the people's feet to the fire. That's true. And there's actually a really interesting debate on the left, I think, among folks who say, the financial crisis was the result of deregulation or the financial crisis was the result of inattentive, incompetent regulators, that that, that actually that the, the, the laws were on the books ne- needed and necessary. The power was in the hands. And this is particularly true of the Federal Reserve, I think, as the essentially the prudential regulator of the entire banking sector to do what needed to be done. And they just didn't do it. Well, there's no doubt that the annihilation of Glass-Steagall was a signal moment in the yep. downfall of the American economy that, that came. Now, oh, you have to talk about the Gatsby curve. <laughs> what a great idea. I love that. Yeah, the Gatsby curve is coined, I want to say, why can't I remember the name of the economist? It's coined by one of the president's economic advisors giving a speech about inequality and mobility. And he makes this very simple point. You know, I think there's a there's part of us that say, well... As Americans, you know, it it doesn't matter how unequal our society gets as long as we still have a lot of mobility, right? I mean, if the rich are getting really rich, that's fine as long as people can get up into the top circle. And the Gatsby curve is just the fact that the two things go together, <laughs> meaning the more unequal society gets, the less mobility it has. These this is just a this is just a, a basic fact. You know, you don't see higher levels of inequality and also higher levels of social mobility. Those two things actually move in opposite directions. 
Well, you have a great rap, too, about the, the fractal nature of our inequality, the difference between the top 90% and the top 10%, and then that's the same as the difference between the top 10% and top 1%. Yep. So talk about that kind of how how pernicious that is. That's the, the Paul Pearson winner-take-all. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> w- what, what you see is that I think it's it's not it's hard to appreciate just how crazy the distributions get the higher and higher up you go. I mean, you know, you think, well, the, the, you know, the 99%, the 1%, you know, the 1% is doing much better than 99%. That's true. But if you zoom in on the 1%, the top 10th of 1% is doing way better than the other folks in the 1%. And if you zoom in on the top 10th of 1%, the top 100th of 1% is doing way better than the other folks in the top 10th of 1%. I mean, way, 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 way better. The, the gains are going to a, are larger and larger as you zoom into a smaller and smaller group of people. And what this means is that the scramble and the kind of assessment of what one's peers are ascends ever upwards, almost like an M.C. Escher drawing. <laughs> and there's no way to ever get to the top. This means that you have this, you know, there's Fidelity did a, did a survey of folks that had a million dollars in investable assets, not counting their housing wealth. Okay, these are very these are wealthy people. If you have a million dollars in investable assets, not counting your your home wealth, you've got a lot of money. And a massive percentage, I forget what the, the number is, I cite it in the book, say they don't feel wealthy, that they would need to have seven million dollars. And this is a product of this kind of income distribution because you're assessing things based on your peers, and because this scale kind of gets sharper and sharper and sharper the further and further you go, the more that folks at the top feel, oh, man, I'm actually, I need to get more money. And that creates this kind of competitive drive and acquisitiveness that's really destructive. You talk about moral hazards. Moral hazards are part of what helped bring us down. You have a a nice uh, spectrum of the moral hazards. And I think one of these things that, that this comes as a as a result of, is the increasing kind of technology. For example, in Major League Baseball, the steroids scandal and and how that all played out, that's really a result of this kind of medical technology that was made available as a result of uh, Clinton-era deregulation. Yeah, it's a funny, uh, the, the, there's a bill that's passed that, that has actually pushed through largely by Orrin Hatch in Utah because the the dietary supplement the DSHEA, Dietary Supplement Health Enforcement Act, something I think is the is the name of it. The dietary supplement industry turns out to be huge in Utah, <laughs> which I didn't know until I did research for the book. The steroids episode, which is in the third chapter called Moral Hazards, is I, I take some time with that for the reason that the idea behind moral hazard is that if people are not sanctioned for the results of their behavior, then you get moral hazard. And sanction means... Put in jail. <laughs> Put in jail, held accountable. You know, the lesson that you take away when you look at, the, at Major League Baseball, it is really, it operates and se- conceives itself as a, as a true meritocracy. And sports is as close as we get to that, right? I mean, there are pretty good measures of whether people are good or not. And that's really all that matters. It doesn't matter if you're an aging, you know, if you're an aging slugger who people is beloved, you're still going to get benched if you can't hit. If you're a 19-year-old kid from the Dominican Republic, no one's ever heard of. You're going to get a start if you can paint the corners with 98-mile-per-hour fastballs. And yet, and we also see in baseball these huge rewards for performance and penalties for, for failure. And yet, the lesson of Major League Baseball in the steroids era, which I think is a really important one for people to understand, 
is that it's much harder than it looks to design a system with big rewards for performance that isn't also a system with big rewards for cheating. And the line between those two will go quickly. If you, in, if you introduce cheating into an organization or an institution or a company or a culture that is built around this kind of high stakes, high reward, meritocratic, ceaseless competitive model, the cheating will move through that institution quickly, spread very quickly, because the competitive drive makes it so. And that's what happened at Enron, which everyone describes as a very unbureaucratic place, as a very meritocratic place, big compensation if you uh, did well. And they cut from the bottom. Yeah, they had something called rank and yank, where the you know people got fired. I think it was every other year if you're in the bottom ten percent of employee evaluations. And it happened on Wall Street. I mean, it happens on Wall Street. And what you see, I mean, right now you see these emails coming out of the LIBOR scandal with Barclays in England. You know, they 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 read just like everything that I cite in that chapter. You know, the emails on Wall Street or in Enron during the when they were going through this process of kind of moral degradation where the norms were getting cut and folks knew that they were doing the wrong thing but had this kind of self-aware joking about it. And you're seeing already, you know, these emails in in the LIBOR scandal coming out that, that read exactly the same way. A culture of open secrets. Yeah, exactly. Open secrets are, are you know, the inside joke and the open secret are key indicators that an institution is in the midst of one of these kind of morally hazardous downward spirals. You see people engaging in wrongdoing, but it's putatively secret, but they all know it. And when they're the inside joke, the, the you know, the knowing smirk, the the kind of self-referential quip in an email about the fact that you're both doing wrong and you kind of are sharing that. These are powerful indicators that you know an institution is in the midst of, of this kind of um, morally hazardous downward spiral. As a reading experience, one of the things I really liked about your book was the way you assembled stories and used stories like the story of MLB, the story of, of Enron, and the story of Joe Stack, and use those to turn these concepts that you're trying to get across into stories that we can experience and sympathize with. And I'm thinking that as a writer, you've got like a stack of details over here and you've got a stack of ideas over here. And the the real trick is Mm -hmm. to shuffle those two decks of cards Mm -hmm. and come out with a story. That's Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the challenge if you're going to write a book that you know, we we learn best from stories, and we mm-hmm. we we get ideas best from stories, and so that that was the challenge of writing the book was was to make sure that it, you know, I wanted it to be I wanted people it to be an enjoyable reading experience. I didn't want it to feel like a, you know, impenetrable work of theory or a textbook or something that was a slog to get through. Um, no, but, it's a page turner. <laughs> well, that's nice of you to say. I mean, that was the that was the goal, and it's 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 hard to do. I mean, it's hard for all nonfiction. I think any time, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction books both because I like nonfiction also for my job. And, um, you know, if you're writing nonfiction, if you're writing nonfiction, particularly nonfiction in this vein, which broadly is social criticism, let's say, it's it's hard to do in a way that really feels like you want to keep going. You know, memoir has a certain basic narrative propulsion to it. If you're writing a history of something, there's a kind of plot points and chronology. Something like this, you're, you're, you're trying to kind of... And you're also constructing from scratch an architecture for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is how does the book unfold just, you know, structurally, which 
is also a sort of tricky thing to do while you're doing these other things. Now, one of the things I love is this when you talk about what we know and how we know what we know. This is really important. This is becoming more obvious every day that there's so much knowledge out there and so much information out there that we really don't, in a sense, we really don't know anything. There's a, a great line in a Stanislaw Lem book where he says, finding the seven books that would save the world would be like finding seven grains of sand in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. It's knowledge, the things that we know, particularly about public life, both concrete things. Now, what is the marginal top marginal tax rate? How many people are unemployed? Projections forward, how many people would be unemployed if we raised or lowered taxes? Basic facts about the world. There's more carbon in the atmosphere. Global average temperatures are rising. We don't actually know firsthand any of this. The entire set of our knowledge about public life is based on trust. It's based on reading sources that we don't think are systematically deceiving us. <laughs> it's based on consensus between a variety of different sources. It's based on assumptions of good faith. For instance, the Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes jobs numbers every month and an unemployment rate. And we all have an assumption, which is an accurate one, but an assumption, that it's not rigging those numbers for political benefit. There are many societies in which you wouldn't assume that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what happens in the landscape that we have now, this leveled institutional landscape of the crisis of authority is that the very mental habits by which we form our views about the world, this looking for consensus, this assumption of good faith, this idea of hearing it from the people who are closest to the story, they've all been discredited. And so we have this, it's a very disorienting, bewildering experience. I mean, the place where this really where I feel this the most is as right now, think about the Iranian nuclear weapons program. There's a huge debate, uh, a policy debate about what to do about this program, a factual intelligence debate about what its capabilities are, how far along it is, what the Iranian regime's intentions are for it, whether it is close to being weaponizable, whether they have any intention to weaponize. And I find myself just having no place to get a hand or foothold on this debate because I'm so scarred by well, the way the weapons of mass destruction debate played out in Iraq. Yeah, I You know. read stories and, you know, the, these stories by, you know, Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, who's, you know, very plugged in and a bunch of anonymous sources from the Israeli intelligence agency saying all these things. I have no idea, no way to evaluate these claims. No way. And that sense of disorientation for someone like myself whose job it is to follow this stuff. I mean, just being a citizen in the world with, you know, a job and kids and commitments in your personal life, it's 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 really hard to kind of operate and steer yourself under these conditions. You talk about assuming good faith and you do give a good sense of the way that this unfolded with the church scandals, the crisis of faith in the Catholic Church, which is just astonishing. And the way you Put the story together, I think, is a really persuasive argument for your concepts here. Yeah, because I spent a fair amount of time talking to folks that uh, were survivors of abuse in the church or are very active in organizations and the movement to 
force the church to be held accountable for what it did. And sometimes, you know, this is the most profound betrayal of trust imaginable. Many of these folks were in households that were very religious. The church was very central to their life. The, the notion of the priest as a moral exemplar was just foundational to the way they viewed the world. And to find out that not only the priests were doing this, but bishops knew about it, and they were allowing priests to continue to do it and reassigning them to parish, to parish, to parish, where, you know, abuse and abuse and abuse, it kind of destroys your whole worldview. <laughs> I mean, it makes it very hard to figure out and I would hear sometimes from, from, from survivors of abuse these kind of what seemed to me paranoid conspiratorial allegations about how broad the reach went. And then I would look in and actually find out that, you know, in certain cases, prosecutors did look the other way. Or in this one case in Tacoma, Washington, the sheriff just asked the priest to leave town uh, rather than, than prosecute him. What happens when you violate people's assumptions of good faith? is they it's very hard for them to reconstruct it and they become inclined towards radical skepticism and that radical skepticism is warranted but also makes it extremely difficult to navigate the world because these basic assumptions of good faith are a huge part of how we function i mean you know when you drive up to a gas station you just assume that the gas station meter is right that it's not rigged and that's just a basic assumption of commerce that the dollars that you get at the grocery store are on counterfeit. We're dependent upon all these basic assumptions of good faith all over the place. So when you when you take that out, it's it's it makes it very difficult to to navigate the world. What is it that makes the elite elite? What tell tell us your concept of what it is that makes them? How do you define the elite? Yeah, my my concept is is not my own insofar as I'm just trying to revive the definition of elite that has pertained for the hundreds of years that people have been writing about the elites, particularly in kind of a post-industrial revolution, let's say. The right has been very good in, I think, bending the meaning of the word and appropriating it in a very specific way to mean explicitly that the elite are people with a certain set of cultural affectations and preferences and traits that are have to do with consumer choices, uh, you know, driving a Prius or shopping in Whole Foods, or listening to NPR, living in San Francisco, rather than the traditional meaning of the elite, which is a small group of people with a disproportionate influence over society's direction. People with a lot of power, people with a lot of resources, people with a lot of connections. A chimney sweep in 19th century London, who happens to like opera and fox hunting, is not a member of the elite, just because he has the cultural affectations of a member of the elite. In the same way that Warren Buffett, who drives a beat-up old sedan and likes unpretentious American heartland food, is not not a member of the elite just because of those cultural tastes. He's one of the most powerful men in the world. So part of the project of the book is just let's rec reclaim what we mean by, by elite. And I think actually one of the really useful things to come out of Occupy Wall Street is this 1%, 99% division. It's such a great tool. Yeah, you it's a great it. conceptual shorthand. You know, obviously it's rough. It, you know, it's... You can quibble with the with the definition and where you put it and whether it should be income or wealth or et cetera. But, you know, as a basic conceptual framework for what the elite is, the one percent is a pretty good a pretty good approximation. You end this book not with despair, although there are in many ways 
it's true that the apocalypse has come to pass. We just haven't noticed it's the pericalypsis, as Salem would say. And because of global warming, we don't, too many people don't even believe it. The number of people who don't believe about it is going up. But you talk about, in the book, you talk about the eras of equality. So tell us a little bit about maybe something to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, I think the optimistic way to view the last, let's say, 80 years of American history is of two distinct eras of equality between basically the Great Depression and 1970, 1970, 1973. We saw what is called by economists the Great Compression, which was this unparalleled, unprecedented, and since unreplicated reduction in inequality. Um, the growth of a mass middle class in the post-war boom, high levels of union density, mass affluence, huge entrance of into college of secondary education, a big reduction in economic inequality. At the same time, there was tremendous inequality along lines of race and gender and certainly sexual orientation. In the second era of equality from 1973, let's say, until now, We've made tremendous strides in in racial equality, although still a long way to go. In gender equality, also a long way to go. Remarkable strides in the equality of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender folk. So the challenge for us is to, to sort of inaugurate a kind of third era in equal, of equality where we combine these two eras because in that same period of time that we've made all these amazing strides in equality for along these kind of li lines of identity, we've seen radical inequality economically. And I think there's some sense that people have maybe that those aren't unrelated, <laughs> that those can't go together, that if you look at uh, societies and governments that have high levels of economic equality, like the Nordic countries, that it's, it's partly produced by this very homogeneous population. But I'm an optimist. I think we can have a society that is both dynamic and entrepreneurial and diverse and accepting of difference in in identity and social senses and also has solidarity and also has uh, a common wheel and a public goods that we all participate in and uh, high levels of citizenship and more, far more equality in terms of wealth and income. I've been speaking with Christopher Hayes. His new book is Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.